Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, March 16th, 2023. We're back to war, thinking about war, previous wars. We've done lots of shows on the Second World War, one with the great British historian Richard Overy. We talked about whether or not the Second World War had ended yet. It still reverberates metaphorically, militarily, culturally, and of course, historically. History never dies. Uh, and when it comes to the Second World War, one novelist we had, Christian Beck, on the show suggested that World War II remains seductive for novelists because it enables them to write about the purity of good and evil. May or may not be true. But what about the First World War? In many ways, a more profound, a more consequential war than the Second World War. Uh, sometimes it gets, if not forgotten, forgotten, perhaps a little overlooked, particularly in the United States. Um, yesterday, we did a show with Christopher Hobson, a uh, uh, Japanese-based political theorist on why the world today, as it begins to fall apart, looks more and more like the Europe uh, in the run-up to 1914. Um, one of my favorite books is a uh, historian, a Viennese-based historian, Philip Blom, who wrote a book called The Vertigo Years, Europe 1900 to 1914, which makes the Europe a, a technologically unstable, uh, dynamic Europe uh, in this period, rather like the world we live in in 2023. Um, going back to the First World War. Uh, the Second World War enabled novelists to write about good and evil. What the First World War, I think, does is enable novelists to write about innocence and knowledge. Uh, the First World War was a wake-up call on so many different fronts. And my guest today, Alice Wynne, has a First World War novel out in memoriam. Uh, it's a hit. It came out last week. I think a lot of people think it's a major new work, perhaps the major work of uh, 2023 so far. Uh, Alice is joining us from Brooklyn. Alice, um, I don't want to talk about the Second World War, but do you think there's some truth to the fact that novelists remain attracted to the First World War uh, because it enables you to write about innocence and knowledge, which seems to be the core in many ways of your book in, in memoriam? Yeah, I think it's a very, um, you know, it's a very fertile ground for artists um, because the stakes, well, because, because the piece that came before for a certain group of people was so very prosperous and graceful. And then the cataclysm was just so total and just, and, and changed that entire world forever. And I think that that contrast is you know, it, it, it makes for very good art, or it, at least it, it is, um, it's very intriguing. One of the striking things about World War One, particularly in the context, I think, of the wars that America have been involved in recently, is that the ruling class fought in those wars, and it shaped and reshaped the ruling class, perhaps destroyed it. Your book, uh, In Memoriam, is in part a book about the British ruling class and relationships within that class. Um, 
perhaps you might say something about the book. Don't give away, of course, all the secrets because we want everyone to read it. I think it's a, it's already a bestseller and it's going to become a major bestseller. Um, but but tell me a little bit about the story uh, of the book in memoriam. So in memoriam opens in this boarding school in the English countryside, and it is this idyllic boarding school. Um, you know, for these young men who are being basically trained to, to grow up and, and rule the empire. And in this very sheltered uh, scenario, uh, you have these two friends who are very close, even though they are very different. There is Sidney Elwood, who is extremely popular and very sort of romantically inclined and very excited about the prospect of a European land war. And then there is Henry Gaunt, who is a bit of a loner and quite concerned about the war when it breaks out, worried about what the impact is going to be on, on the British Empire. And uh, they are very close friends and they also are both in love with each other, but they both think that this love is unrequited and they can't talk about it because it's 1914 and it's all completely uh, taboo. So then uh, they both end up at the front together and the question sort of shifts from, you know, whether they are ever going to be on the same page romantically and it becomes instead like, are they going to both survive this terrible war? Is there an element in your book, Alice, of class analysis? Are you interested in the, in the politics of the period or is it mostly uh, a novel about innocence and growing up and love and un unrequited and requited love? I sometimes put people on a scale of uh, Alexander Pope to John Keats. I find that kind of helpful sometimes. Um, you know, Alexander Pope being, you know, this very political writer who who was very prosaic. Uh, I mean, he wrote a lot of poetry, but you know, he he was he was very very clued into his own time. And John Keats, you know, is this romantic poet, and he was very escapist. And I'm all the way over on Keats, right? Which um, which I think is reflected in, in In Memoriam. I think it is a very romantic, capital R romantic book. And it, so I don't think I would call it a book that is striving to be political, but you can't avoid being political when you're talking about this. And there is a character at the front who is a working class officer and all the other officers come from the same sort of 25 odd uh, public schools, you know, private schools. Um, and they they just fit in they know how to be uh you know in this in this class of officers whereas Hayes the working class officer uh he's he's not only is he having to deal with the war but he's also having to deal with the fact that uh there's this social element right for instance the officers were supposed to um have their own uniforms tailored and made and all the public school boys they know a good tailor. Whereas Hayes, he has to just, you know, he's found some random tailor, it's a bad tailor and his clothes look wrong. And that's the first thing everyone thinks about him. So I think just when you're reading contemporary sources, um, the, the politics are sort of baked in, right? Because uh, the class politics of World War One were so interesting because, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways for a lot of these upper class boys, uh, it was sort of the most they'd ever interacted with the working classes when they were suddenly put, you know, they were 18 years old and told that they were to lead these men to their death. And that's sort of the first time they've really come into contact with the working class. So you, in, when you're reading the contemporary sources, it's it's hard to avoid those class politics. So I, I did try to tease that out a little bit. The war, the First World War is a weird kind of, I, I, it's not a mirror, but it's a revelation. It, it reveals the absurdity of the class structure of pre-1914 Europe. 
um, it exposed all the contradictions and hypocrisies of the age. And your book also focuses on the sexual contradictions and hypocrisies of the age. If it hadn't been for the war, had uh, uh, had uh, Archduke Ferdinand been a few feet lower in his in his car when he was driving through the streets of Sarajevo and not been assassinated, or had Gavrilo Princip not pulled the trigger at a certain moment, do you think that it's conceivable in 2023 we would still be living in the Edwardian age you describe uh, in uh, in in memoriam. That's an interesting sort of counterfactual question. I think it's interesting, but I I guess I take issue with the idea that if the you know if the archduke hadn't been shot, the war wouldn't have broken out. You you can see they they were just they were spoiling for a fight. Um, I, I just don't think it was going to continue. You know, you can see, I can't remember what's his first name, um, Balfour, the Prime Minister from... Arthur, I think his name was. Arthur they were Balfour. all called Arthur, Alice. <laughs> yes, and Arthur Balfour, I, re I remember reading somewhere, you know, he was kind of an interesting man, and he, as early in the early 1900s, he had started stockpiling weapons. And something else you read, when you're reading, like, Edwardian literature from this period, there's this sense that there's a war coming. Everyone's kind of excited about it. They don't know who it's going to be against. And a lot of a lot of British writers talk about how they expect they're going to be at war with the French. And when the war breaks out, I think an interesting thing I kept coming up against was that a lot of the soldiers were surprised that Britain had entered the conflict on the side of the French rather than the Germans. And so there's this tension in World War One. I. I mean, you talk about World War Two. I think I think you're right that it's it's easy to think of it as a war where you can discuss just e evil and good in contrast, you know, you've got evil Nazis and good allies. But in World War I, uh, I don't, I, I think it it was sort of fluky in a lot of ways, the, the lines of conflict. Um, and I, you know, that's, that's sort of a, a point of tension in the book because um, one of the protagonists is half German and he feels very, very English, but he also feels very mixed up about the fact that he is fighting his cousins. And then it just feels like if he had, you know, if his mother had just insisted on him being raised in Munich, he would be fighting instead all of his, all of his friends who he would never have met. Um, which doesn't answer your question, because the question of had the war not happened, you know, how would we be different, different now? I, I certainly think it's odd for me as a woman because, um, you know, you don't want to say, oh, I'm glad the war happened, but I certainly don't see that w women's rights would have progressed at the rate that they did without the war. I mean, uh, it, it it is, you know, it's how the women women got the vote in, in Britain. They got the vote after World War I. Um, and yeah, I think, I think in a lot of ways, social rights were massively improved by the war. So that's a sort of a strange tension as well there. Yeah, I guess I didn't know. I didn't. I don't think I asked the question very well. I don't ask most questions very well, but that one in particular, it doesn't seem to me, in contrast with the Second World War, that the First World War was inevitable. But maybe that's a subject for another conversation. You talked about this lust for war amongst the English ruling class, the kind of men who appear in your book. The striking thing, of course, about the First World War is there hadn't been a major war in Europe since the Napoleonic times, a hundred years before. This cult of war and violence, um, of course, is you, you mentioned women's rights, is a very male phenomenon, and certainly you articulate it and, 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 and discuss it in your book. 
You also, of course, write about uh, the, the the homosexual relationship between the two major figures. Is there a connection, do you think, between this, I don't know what you want to call it, closeted, repressed homosexuality uh, within the British ruling class and the cult of violence which drove the British and the Germans and everybody else in Europe towards this catastrophic war? I don't know. I've never thought about it in, in such clear terms. Um, I guess I, I might... I, d I don't know if I, I sort of quibble with the term cult of violence because I think I think it was really a cult of chivalry and, and violence as part of that. But I, you know, I think a big part of um, the sort of idolization of war that these boys feel is is based on ignorance and they they really don't understand violence. I think they're very, very shocked by it when it when they go to the war and see what it's really like, um, because I think they've read a sort of clean violence in books. Um, but to connect that to the homosexuality and the closeted homosexuality of the ruling classes, I, I don't know. I think um, you kind of see that a little bit in, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to bang on about World War II, but I mean, I think there's there's an element of, um, in, in World War II, you see these like gay Nazis who are, you know, they're, they're homosexuals because they, they love men and they're very, you know, they're very masculine. There's this sense of kind of, masculinity being so much superior to femininity that that's why that they don't want to be with women they want to be with men and that kind of all ties in with violence which I think is is close to what you're talking about but I don't feel that that's something that I came across in my reading um and when you look at the you know great war writers of World War One, most of whom were queer they are pretty much one and all pacifists. And in fact, one of the only war poets I can think of who is not pacifist is Julian Grenfell, who is a fascinating figure. He um, he loved the war. He was, um, he's, as I said, one of the only ones I can find who was, who was pacifist, and, and not, not pacifist, and also, uh, as far as I can tell, straight. Um, and, you know, he writes about, he, his letters home are so fascinating because he's He's writing home and he's saying, you know, oh, gosh, I love the trench. He says at one point he says he'd rather sleep in a trench than in a feather bed. And then at 27, um, he's shot, I think, in the head. And as he's being carried away, he says, I'm going to die now. And someone says, no, don't don't say that. And he says, just you watch. And then he does. Um, so interesting, interesting figure. Um, but yeah, Perfect no. For the movies, uh, you know, thinking, I, I think you're right. I think it was a, another bad question from me. But um <laughs> and you've seen uh, Terence Davis's movie Benediction about Siegfried Sassoon. Uh, Sassoon, of course, as you suggest, was gay and was against the war. I don't know whether I think we have to be I have to be careful connecting sexual identity and whether or not you're for or against the war. I like your point on the cult of chivalry versus the cult of violence. Was that the real tragedy, that these young men were brought up with the cult of chivalry, but technology had moved so dramatically throughout the 19th century that when the war came, it wasn't a war where chivalry was conceivable? I, You know, I, I suspect that a, a true military historian here would come in with some idea that a lot of... You know, I think there is this narrative that, like, the... the the technology of World War One just sort of erupted in World War One and had never been seen before. But I, I actually suspect it had been seen in the Boer War and um, what's Crimea, probably. 
Well, Crimea, yeah, I guess so. Although that was a bit earlier, wasn't it? And then there was also the the, the war between Japan and Russia. I think was yeah, nineteen oh five, which uh, we we've had some shows. Yeah, so so um, you one of the the amazing things about your book is that you did a huge amount of research. From you went to Marlborough College and you did a, a lot of uh, research, just reading um, about uh, letters from soldiers and civilians about the war. What did you learn? What, why is this such an essential part of, uh, of the book? How did you even think about doing that? Um, I'm so sorry if you can hear my cat, desperate to get in. Um, I hopefully he'll go away. No, better um, than a dog, Alice. The dogs, yeah. the dogs are, who appear on this show are noisy cats. Yes. Are much more welcome because they don't make any noise. Yes, we'll give give him time to really get worked up. Um, so I read, I read, Marlborough had put up the school newspapers um, from 19, well, from the early part of the century. And I read the school, the student newspapers um, from, from this, from 1913 to 1919, I read. And um, they, they were, they were incredibly raw because they, they were written by the students for the students. You know, they begin and it's 1913 and uh, just classic, you know, it's funny teenage boys and they're a bit entitled and, you know, they have every reason to believe they're going to inherit the earth. More um, than a bit, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, and they're, but they're funny and they're charming as well as being smug and obnoxious. It's a kind of sort of heady in combination. And then the war breaks out and they are so excited and they all enlist and they write these, you know, really bad poems about, you know, storming the German wire and all this, you know, really, really saccharine stuff and um and then they start dying and it's the boys at school who are writing the in memoriams for their older friends and their older brothers and the in memoriams as well they start off and they're sort of sickly in some ways i mean that you know they talk about you know we envy him his gallant death uh we you know we wish we could have such a, an honor as to die for england you know all that kind of stuff and then the war just keeps going and they change tenor and you just see all of the ideals just getting smashed up and, and the letters from the front change, you know, at the beginning of the war, it's very much, it's these, you know, 19 year old boys writing back to the school paper being like, oh, it's great. No one's making me wash. And then, you know, by 1915, I remember there was this letter and it's this man who writes back and he says, the 16th was an awfully sad day. I had not realized what it would mean to see all your friends dead and dying all around you. And, and they just, they're so sad. Um, and, Usually when you're reading war literature, it's 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 written by someone who went through the war and then took 10 years to process it and now is trying to explain what they went through to someone who wasn't there. But the newspapers were so vital because they're written by people who were there for people who were there, right? That it's this it's this insular tragedy that I am a voyeur in. They're not writing it for anyone else. Everyone reading these newspapers is also going through the same tragedy. And I I I don't know, I found that incredibly um engrossing and, and, and upsetting and compelling. And I, I guess I just wanted to recreate that feeling because I think in some ways it, you know, the war is so I mean, any any war is so enormous that it's really hard to understand emotionally and psychologically the damage because you know you hear sixty thousand casualties on the first day of the Somme in the British Army alone, and you think, well, that's a lot of people. But you see 
27 names in a single school newspaper for one day. And that, I think, is you shrink it down so that people can understand it, so that you you can kind of recognize what that would feel like. Um, at least that was the experience I had when I was reading the newspapers, and that was what I wanted to explore in my own novel. Did you start reading the newspapers with the idea of the novel in your head, or did you have the idea, uh, did you read the newspapers with the idea that you'd like to write a novel and you'd start just searching for a, yeah, a I was plot that. and character? I was procrastinating. I, I just was procrastinating on something and I just got sucked in. You know how that happens on the internet. You know, one minute you're supposed to be writing an essay and the next minute you, you're deep in the Wikipedia page for pencils or something. And it was kind of like that. And then I, uh, the first thing I did was, you know, with these newspapers, sometimes you'd have a whole newspaper where almost all of it was quite boring and impenetrable. And then there'd be like three sentences that were just absolutely just devastating. And so I would copy them, I would type those out. And then I would just, I kept typing out all the ones that struck me. And then I mocked up a paper that was just kind of, you know, filled with those. And I, don't, I was just doing it, I don't know why. And then um, that was the first thing I did, I wrote. And then I, yeah, I just wrote some newspapers um, that were with things that I had lifted from the original papers. And then, um, then I just started writing pretty much. And I wrote it very, very fast. I wrote most of the first draft in two weeks. Were you always wanting to write a novel? I know you um, you studied. Uh, what, what did you study at Oxford? Was it English literature? English, yeah. Um, I yeah. I've I well. I had actually written three novels before that hadn't really found their feet, and I was trying not to write a novel because clearly I was like, well, I'm wasting my time. Um, so yeah, this one kind of just hit me over the head. And I know you also have aspirations to do screenplays. In fact, some of the bios I've, I've read of you suggest that you, you write screenplays and you just happen to write a novel. Were you tempted to turn this into just a, a, a screenplay rather than a novel? No, I, so uh, my bio, I think, the bio I submitted says I write screenplays, which is true, which is, I think, different from being a screenwriter. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I was working on, I, I was a writer's assistant in LA and I was um, working on a screenplay with a writer and that was the thing I was procrastinating on. And I was also working on other things with friends, but um, I I don't know, I think everyone has a sort of native language that is a thing that they speak, that they can you know write in best. And for me, novels are most natural to me. Um, but I mean, saying that, I think uh, it would make a very good film. I think it's cinematic inherently, the, the book. All Quiet on the Western Front, of course, won, uh, the, a German film won uh, an Oscar last week. Um, what can we say about an, or show about the First World War that we haven't already said or shown? I think that's an interesting question because, uh, to, okay, in one sense, uh, I feel that there is this focus on on originality when sometimes you just need to be told things again or to be shown things in a new light. Um, so I I hesitate because to me, I'm like, there's so much wonderful literature from World War One. the idea that I'm somehow, you know, saying something that Siegfried Sassoon and Robert Graves and Vera Britton didn't is, is sort of, it feels hubristic to me. Um, I, I think that the book is very wistful and I think that it it grapples a lot with the complication, the complicated feeling of wistfulness when the thing you were wistful for was was sort of 
with because I think Gaunt and Elwood, the protagonists, are both very in love with the version of England they were living in that was sort of broken all along. And the war comes up and, and smashes it all completely. And they still feel wistful for this England that, that sort of never really existed. And I find that interesting um, as a concept for the present day. I think there's a lot of wistfulness, you know, possibly for a pre-internet age, but certainly for the, the past, there's this real focus on nostalgia among millennials and Gen Z. And yet there's also a, a been a real cultural reckoning with the ways in which the past was damaging to huge groups of people. And I think that that's something that the book kind of engages with in a sideways fashion. So maybe that's something that's different. But again, as I say, you know, I don't, I, the literature of World War One is is just phenomenal, and uh, I think it, you can't argue that it it's lacking something. Do you worry that your book um, might be used by that nostalgia industry, a romantic story of two young men in the First World War, uh, love story? As you say, it's not new, but I don't know whether I, I think your point's a good one that newness is is probably. The wrong way of thinking about it. Are you worried that people who who don't really understand war will romanticize this? I think the book. It would. It, I think it'd be very hard to say the book romanticizes war. I think it's it's very very explicitly an anti-war book. Um, so like I think, all quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, I don't think you could make that case. I I think there is something maybe a bit inherently conservative about it in that it. You know, it is about two white privileged public school boys and their experience. And also, as I said, there is that sense of wistfulness for uh, for a past that that they that such a small group of people was able to enjoy. There's an interesting quotation from Charles Edward Montague, who is this really fascinating journalist who wrote these sort of Atlantic think piece style articles about what had happened to society after World War One. Um, he he enlisted, even though he was too old to enlist. He um he and he didn't he didn't he was a pacifist, but he dyed his hair. His hair was white. He dyed it brown so that he could lie about his age and go to the front. And um, really interesting man. And he talked about. Um, he he talked about how the pre-war society was um, Elysian, Elysian that is for anyone who was not poor, which I thought was such an interesting little, like anyone who was not poor, but that's, you know, that must have been most of the country who was poor. So there is this kind of, yeah, this conflict where I think a lot of people who were prosperous in that era would look back on it misty-eyed, but, you know, for the poor it was, it was, you know, they were suffering the equivalence with 2023 and the world before 1914 are self-evident we're living in an increasingly aristocratic world enormous inequalities between the wealthy and the poor although they're articulated and justified and articulate uh, sort of manifested in different ways you're obviously part of like me part of the the new ruling class you went to private school oxford university you live in brooklyn now um are there similarities, do you think, between 2023 and, and 1914 in terms of the, the profound chasm between people of privilege and everybody else? I, I, I saw that you had mentioned in your intro to this, this feeling that, you know, uh, the world is coming to resemble more and more Europe right before the outbreak of war. And I want to push back on that because I think that it's it's sort of dangerous to get 
too, um, I, this is the wrong word, but sort of excited about doom. Um, and I think I do see similarities, you know, and I think I think that's exactly how people in Europe felt in this time period. And that's why I think it's important to push back and to look at the things that have gone well and the things that have improved. And and to kind of because I think the risk of of comparing too closely and to and the risk of feeling that there is some some great cataclysm that must come and break everything apart so that mm. we can start again is is that um we can kind of herald it and and, and bring it on uh, and get sort of I don't know I, I I just think I just think there's got to be a way that we can reform our way peacefully to a better world I mean maybe that's very naive but um, I don't know I, I to me some of the not that you were being sensationalist but some of the sensationalist language I often see in the news. It, it feels almost complacent to me. It feels like someone who doesn't actually expect that the revolutions they're predicting are going to break out and ruin everything. They're kind of, they're saying it in this way where they they can feel, they feel safe in predicting a revolution because, because they're so sure it won't happen. And, and I think it's important to fight back against that complacency, but I don't know if I'm making any sense. I just- Yeah, you are. And it's, it's a really interesting conversation. Of course, the revolution in 1914 that the ruling class was so fearful of was the Bolshevik Revolution, which broke out as a consequence of the war. We did a show yesterday with Kristen Loesch, another first-time novelist, as a new book out, The Last Russian Doll, all of, with a narrative about which begins at, in the Russian Revolution. Um, it doesn't seem as though we, we have, and, and that's what I talked to Chris Hobson about, Everything is broken these days, but it's not clear how it can be put back together. Um, there is no Bolshevik revolution on on the horizon, um, so it's a it's an even weirder time. Do you think these days, Alice? Well, I'd like to be. It 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 would be nice to be old enough that you could really gauge this properly. Um, you know, I'm 30, and so for me, it's hard to know. Has the world always felt like this? You know, I don't know. Um, maybe in the eight, you know, I think in the 60s they thought that the hydrogen bomb would come and get them. Mm. You know? And and in the 90s there were terrible wars in Europe that might have spilled over. And you know, there was the fall of the. Soviet. It's just I don't know. So I I'm not. I feel I feel sort of not old enough to be able to say whether this is an extraordinary circumstance uh, that we are living through. I mean, obviously the pandemic was, um, and I don't, I think it, you know, there's always a risk of sounding naive when you, when you predict hopeful things in the future um, and everyone, no one wants to be Neville Chamberlain, but um, I just, I just think there is hope. There are so many medical advancements, scientific advancements. Young people are, I, I just think Gen Z are a really, really exciting generation. They're so committed to to social change for the for the better, um, and they're less reactionary than the millennials were when we were when we were young. Um, you know, they're they're sort of less keen to cancel and more keen to just like deal with what matters most. And I just think they're such an interesting, exciting generation. Um, I don't want to put all this on their shoulders, but I I don't know. I I do. I feel a lot of hope for the future. I think I think it's. Um, I think it's important to try and cultivate hope for the future. I don't know if that answers your question. 
No, it does, and it and it and it, and it cheers me up, um, especially in, in ha having just spoken to Chris Hobson last night about the the beginnings of a new First World War. Yeah. You're a novelist, so you imagine being someone else. You imagine being two young English aristocrats or wealthy young men at the beginning of the First World War. You said you're not old enough to make sense of perhaps some of the historical um, complexities of, of the contemporary age, but you can't. You, you can imagine being old, can't you? As a as a, as a novelist, we we did a show last week about Philip Roth and whether one should or shouldn't have the right to write as a black person, a male, a, a Jew, or whatever. I mean, you chose to write as a as a young. Uh, you chose to, and I use this word carefully, appropriate the voices and lives of people who are different from you. Could you imagine being old, do you think? Yes, I think I could. When I was saying that it would be helpful to be old to answer your question, I guess what I mean is that I would have that understanding. I would be able to look back on the last 80 years and be like, yes, it always feels as if the, war, the world is on fire, or no, the world was on fire for 10 years in the middle of my life that would be helpful to answer your question. But uh, no, of course, I mean, you'd have to do research, you'd have to think about it, and you'd have to talk to old people. So uh, when it comes to writing outside of my own experience, you know, there is this move at the moment, the own voices movement, which I think has actually been a, a real force for good in that it has challenged writers to not be lazy. And, you know, there's no problem with writing outside of your own experience, as long as as long as you do your due diligence, you know, and I, I know that it is possible to write outside of your own experience, because throughout my life, I have continually felt seen by male authors writing women, right? I mean, I, I remember in um, Nicholas Nickleby, there's this scene where Kate Nickleby is almost sexually assaulted. And I, I have rarely feel been felt so seen uh, by a scene like that because it 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 was just so spot on and I don't think Dickens even really liked women so obviously it can be done the question is just you know are you are, am I good enough to do it and I think the unvoices movement really pushes people to try harder and and work harder and that's a good thing and I I certainly did a lot of research and I had a lot of people read the book and I took a lot of criticism and I think you took a lot what, what kind of criticism <laughs> I had <laughs> not to get too graphic but I had one friend and he said so who is the bigger dick and I was I was like what do you what do you mean and he was like well they know and I was like do they and he was like yes <laughs> so I had to decide and actually once I thought about it I knew but um but it was so who you know, was uh so Elwood has the bigger dick oh. <laughs> I just I, really, I thought about it for a second I was like oh yeah that's right is but, that important though do you think well, I just, I mean, he was, a, the, the guy who was reading it, he was a gay man, and he just, you know, he gave me a lot of, uh, he just asked me a lot of questions of things to think about that it wouldn't necessarily have crossed my mind to think about, and um, I'm really grateful to him, and, you know, he's a friend, and um, I just think that's always going to make a novel stronger, to have feedback from people who, who can ask the right questions and make you think harder about what you're writing, that's always going to improve your writing. Finally, Alice, do you think that this is a radical book? Um, do you, is it shocking in some ways? I mean, the big dick one might be slightly yeah, shocking. Sorry, but I don't mean to. Yeah, well, this is a family show, so children need to switch off on that question. But um, is there something shocking, radical about this book? 
to me. I mean, does it even matter, or is that a dumb another dumb? No, question? I don't think that's a dumb question. I, don't, I, I just, I to me, I don't think so. But I, that's probably the circles I run in. To me, I think it's it's just a book about you know friendship and respectful love. And to me, those things aren't radical. They're they're sort of wonderful. Um, I suppose what's shocking is is the gruesomeness of the war. That is pretty horrific but i don't think it's anything we haven't seen we're so desensitized to violence these days 